This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on The Literary Life today is an author that I've admired ever since I read his very first book, The Rules of Civility. All of you also know him as the author of A Gentleman in Moscow. And for those of you who have not yet had the remarkable experience of reading his newest book, I urge all of you to run out and read Amor Tolls' new one called The Lincoln Highway. Amor, welcome to The Literary Life. Mitch, thanks for having me. I it's, should leave right now, because it's not going to get better <laughs> than that, right? It's going to only get better. <laughs> okay. This was a remarkable book, as, as, I've, as I've told you uh, off mic. Uh, and the thing that I think struck me most, as I was just kind of, there's so much going on, but the strain that runs through all of your books, and is so, so clear in this one, is that you write with such a sense of heart, such a sense of morality. Could you tell us a little bit about where The Lincoln Highway came from? And as a novel? As a novel. For me, I've been writing fiction since I was a kid. And I wrote fiction in high school and in college and graduate school. And so over the course of my life, I've had ideas present themselves to me as an idea for a story or a book. And they tend to come in the form of a sentence or two, and sort of in a flash, like a man gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. You know, that was sort of the notion that I then dwelled on, eventually imagined into the full shape of a gentleman in Moscow. In the case of the Lincoln Highway, about a decade ago, I had this notion of a kid returning home uh, from a juvenile, work, a juvenile work camp where he's, been done, he's done time, being driven by the warden, and the warden saying, uh, you're a good person, you've paid your debt to society, you should start your life anew. And the young man saying that was his intention. And when the warden drove away, it would turn out that there were two other kids from the work facility hiding in the trunk of the warden's car with a very different sort of plan for our hero's near future. And that's the notion I started with. It's just it's a very simple thing. Warden arriving with two kids hiding in the trunk of the car. But when something like that grabs me, then I start to dwell on it and imagine all the various components. Where does it take place? Who else is involved? What are their backgrounds? Where are they going? 
but some of it comes within minutes. And so within minutes, I knew that the hero Emmett Watson would be returning to a family farm in the Midwest, in Nebraska. I knew that uh, it would be set in the mid-50s, and I knew that the whole story would only last 10 days, and that the other two guys in the trunk would be New Yorkers of different kinds. And so then you're kind of off, and, off to the races, you know? Um, the, the element that you're asking about, kind of at the front end, the sort of the, the, the morality of it, the humanity of it, I think in the case, each novel you discover that in a different way. Uh, in the case of this book, in retrospect, I think it's so much of the life of the book is, is about the fact that it is a book about 18-year-olds. You have three 18-year-old uh, young men, roughly, and a 19-year-old young woman. And that's a very peculiar moment in our lives. You know, when we shift from having our parents and our school and our church and our community shaping us to suddenly being in charge of it ourselves, where we realized... I'm in charge of where I want to go, who I want to become, and what I think is right and wrong. And so, so it felt very natural for this sort of ensemble of, of young men, mostly men, but Sally as well, in the process of thinking about their future for the first time in a very active way, for it to become a story about morality to some degree. It does. And I think what also lends, um, what lends to the story is the fact that those 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 eighteen year olds are certainly, you know, the ones that are the most present in the story. Yet you also have peppered in throughout all of these other voices right. that are either um, contrasting who they are, or you have the voice, you have the chorus, the voice of innocence yes. of the thirteen year old boy. Yes. And so, um, did that all come later on as you were sort of figuring out? the arc of the story. I am an outliner, and I do spend a couple of years imagining the story to its full extent before I write chapter one. So by the time I sat down to write chapter one, I have I know every chapter in the story. I know all the characters, including the ones that you're talking about, whether it's Ulysses, the middle-aged uh, black American veteran, or Pastor John, the uh, the, the sort of larcenist uh, you know, uh, minister. I've, I've imagined them fully before I get started. But once the writing begins and you're moving with the kids and I'm moving with the kids, certainly you're discovering a deeper sense of each of those individuals and the role they play in the story. The, the other thing that's, you know, as, as someone who's not a writer but a reader, it's so interesting that the novel is told through the perspective of each of these characters. Right. And you don't have a false note in any of them, meaning that you could, you could probably take the characters separately and read them all for themselves, and there's nothing anachronistic, there's nothing that's false in any of them. How do you keep track of all of that? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and certainly the, the thinking about it in advance is a big help, uh, but I edit very carefully too. So when I'm done with the first draft, I will go back to the beginning and revise the book from beginning to end about three times. And when I'm doing that, I'm very focused on, on this aspect you're talking about, which is I'm writing, I'm editing a Wooly chapter. And I have to make sure that it's an embodiment of Wooly's personality, you know, or whether it's a Duchess chapter. And I'm, in my work to date, I have not really used the omniscient narrator. So if you think of the classic omniscient narrator who knows everything about the characters, their past, their future, their internal thoughts, I'm a, a, a writer who, when I've done the third person, as in A Gentleman in Moscow, the third person is very closely fused with the psychology of the protagonist. 
It's really an expression of his personality, his idiosyncrasies, his vocabulary, his semantics, his poetics. And so the challenge for the me and the Lincoln Highway is that I was going to have eight voices. And each has to be distinct because it's the language that they are thinking in that ultimately gives us a window into their personality or their soul or whatever you want it, however you want to put it. So I, I really did have to edit to the point and listen to them to the point where if a reader has read the book once, they could open to any page, read a paragraph and know exactly who said that, you know, or who's thinking that in this way that you're describing. Um, because that's how you bring, I think, the characters to life in a work like this is by getting the voices well, right. Well, a, a perfect example would be Ulysses, right? Yes. The character of Ulysses, who doesn't really appear that much in the book. Yeah. But each time he does, his voice is so distinct. Yes. That you really know who it is who's speaking. That's right. And you have a real sense that you know him, you know his backstory. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable you've been able to do that in such a short period of time. And I'm very interested and have been throughout my writing life in how do you bring an individual to life through the language you're using right. as a representation of their identity. And if you do that well, it has great economy to it. Because once you can hear how the person thinks, it's sort of a window into how they see the world and what they're feeling. And it's done through the word choice, as opposed to a long description of how they're feeling or what they think. Right. And, and also, for, for those who haven't read it yet, I mean, the other thing that is, was compelling for me is how propulsive the novel actually is. So you're getting at right. the end, you know, you're reading about Woolley or you're reading about Emmett, and at the end of the chapter, you're going, I, I can't wait to get back to right. hear right. how Emmett just resolved what I just read about. Yeah. But then you're off to a new issue yeah. and a new new voice. There's a lot of baton well. passing in, 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 this, in the story. And, and so I'm, that's, I'm asking a lot from a reader to go through that, to, to deal with eight different voices, but also to constantly be shifting from character to character. So again, I have to be very careful both in the writing and the editing to ensure that, that it's, it's worth it for the reader to go through that experience. Most know? definitely, because you could see that if there was a, a false note at the end of one of the chapters, yeah. somebody might just give Dr up. Yeah, give up, exactly. <laughs> Why know? are we talking about this now? Right. One thing that's interesting, I think, that, that speaks to you know, the observation you're making is that for those of you who haven't read it, the book, as I said, takes place over 10 days. And, and so in the original design of the book, it was day one, day two, oh, day three, day four, day five was the way they, uh, the sections were named. And, and for each day, you'd hear from different people. And that's how you kind of learn the sum of events in that day. And you'd move through the chronology as the, in that way. And I got halfway through the book in the first draft. And I was frustrated. I felt like uh, the narrative was drifting, that the character development was off, that the, the internal pace was wrong. And it, 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 it's a moment of, of doubt. It's a loss of confidence, and that happens. So you take a step back, and you leave your desk for a couple of days. And yeah, yeah. in that process, I, occasionally you have an insight. And my insight here was, at this sort of hit me like a flash, this book is not day one, day two, day three, day four. It's actually 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It is a countdown. And, you know, the thing I love about a countdown is, you know, we use it in, in American or Western culture to, to signal the end of a boxing match. You know, you are done. You know, the, we have a new heavyweight champion. It, we, we use it to launch rocket ships. We use it to end the year and begin the new year. You know, the countdown from 10. So it's this very rich sort of concept. But it, it dovetails with what this book is, is the book does have an internal urgency. It is moving kind of towards a 
uh, an inescapable fate for the individual characters, where the options are shrinking as they you know, come towards a conclusion that they, as I say, can't uh, get out of. And so all of that is, is somehow expressed in this idea of 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. So I went back, and I named the sections 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 instead of day 1, day 2. And I began editing the book from the beginning with that in mind. And without changing the order of events, it allowed me to, to listen to the pace of the story, to the, uh, the articulation of events, to the impressions of the characters, and make sure it's all in the service of this sort of forward momentum that they're collectively sharing in uh, towards you know, the final day, as it were. And, and you know, that saved the book for me, you know, in a way. Well, it works. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, within, within this well-plotted, fascinating story, you also put, you, you also imbue the story with philosophy, with mythology, with history, with all of those things that I assume come from interests of your own. Yes. And I, I'm, I, when I was writing A Gentleman in Moscow, when I set out to write A Gentleman in Moscow, I, I knew that 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 was not going to be a minimalist work. It was going to be a maximalist work. You know, so it wasn't going to be in a tradition of Carver or Hemingway or Chekhov. It was going to be more in the tradition of Tolstoy, where everything's there. You know, food, music, painting, history, philosophy. And I think sort of coming out of that work and do, going into the Lincoln Highway, I, I, my intention was, thinking in advance, was this going to be a much, spare, much more spare book, starting in the Midwest in the 50s, just a you know, small group of young men, I felt like, oh, this is going to be very streamlined. And it's probably going to be, my, my editor said, well, you know, how, how long do you think this will be? I said, oh, this is going to be like a 200 to 300 page book. You know, very lean and sharp. And, uh, but once I got into it, the, 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 the maximalist tenity, tendency reasserted itself. As I began to investigate the in, internal lives of each of the individual characters, they came with, uh, with their own, with different kinds of narratives. And uh, so, you know, where young Billy has this book of mythological stories and adventure stories that he loves, heroes from history and from fantasy, that's kind of this history, historical narrative that he brings into the book and becomes a part of the book, whereas Duchess is the son of a failed Shakespearean, and he was kind of raised hearing Shakespearean monologues over and over and over, and, and he brings that kind of thread of, of Western narrative into the book, and it becomes a part of the book. So as I say, once I sort of took the lid off, the characters were bringing in all these sorts of elements of philosophy and history. Was there one of the characters that you had to, that was... Was a the, greater struggle, maybe? Not a struggle, but that was a little bit more foreign to you, you know, in terms of what you know. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really feel that way about any of them. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's a, a, a failure in my own self-scrutiny. No, 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 because I, I would assume that <laughs> yeah. each character is a bit of you in yeah, it, Yeah, well, too. maybe there's that. I, you so. know, it, it's... You know, in, in, the, in the modern era, uh, you know, this book, it does have uh, sections told from the perspective of a young uh, woman in the Midwest. It has sections told from the perspective, as we said, about a, of a middle-aged uh, black American. And you know, that's a case where it's, you, know, you might have thought, well, that, that must be the place where it was a greater challenge. But it, it, as I say, for better or worse, you have to decide as the reader. In neither of those cases did that feel like a bigger challenge. And I think that it's because I knew both of their backgrounds in my head, and more importantly, I knew their tone. I knew what their emotional state was as the story began, and that's kind of what defines how they talk. Uh, and so it's not so much about, you know, uh, I, I think that 
that in the modern era, we don't talk about this enough, but very often bringing a character life is really more of a, a dynamic about personality than it is about, say, ethnicity or class exactly. or gender. It's, if you can get their personality right, it comes across. I think that is the point, because I would have imagined that Emmett might have been the more difficult one. Yeah, and being, you're right about being that. from Nebraska... <laughs> <laughs> who I can't imagine you know a lot about Nebraska. Right. I don't, yes. and it's not something that was in our in our sphere. However, yeah. when you you know we were all eighteen year olds, yes, <laughs> and that sense of that sense of controlling one's emotions and trying to do the right thing, yes, was something that I'm sure was something that you could relate to. Well, and I think you hope that that's a sort of a universal experience, yeah. and that's part of the fun of the writing process is that you find yourself investigating an experience which has universal attributes and you start to learn from it yourself. And uh, most, if there's wisdom in the Lincoln Highway or in A Gentleman in Moscow, or if somebody comes up to me and said, this passage in this book really meant a lot to me or I wrote it down or it was so insightful, I shared it with my daughter or my husband or whatever, 99% of the time, those insights are insights that I never would have had in the course of my own life. Right. What's happened is that I am writing about a character who I am not with a different personality and a different background. I've put them in a situation in which I have never been. And suddenly in the midst of that situation, the character will look around and say, you know, the thing about it is, and they go da 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 da. And they have this, and I'm like, wow, that was genius. Well done, you know, Duchess. You really nailed it, or well done, Count. Um, but that's the way it comes. And, you know, and so I am, there's no question in my mind about the power of empathy in, in literature and uh, both for the artist and you hope for the reader as well. That and because that's an, that's that's part of the magic of empathy, the idea of having an insight that you would never have had in the course of your own experience. Well, you have empathy in this, but you also have compassion. Well, because they, can't, they go together. They probably. go they go together. Yeah. Well, usually they do. Hopefully they do. <laughs> Hopefully they do. But yeah. you also, I mean, there's no the, your characters were all trying to resolve each other's problems. Right. You know, it's one of these things like misdirections all over the place. Yes, right. But what they ultimately wanted to do was do the right thing. Yeah. And I think what it told me when I read it, and have, you know, being a kid myself, having my own kids, you just realize how hard it is to do the right thing. It is hard. No matter how hard you try. Well, it's hard to control all the elements. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's hard to know what the right thing is, and then right. it's hard to actually execute, exactly. right? They're both problematic. And, and part of, of course, a big part of this book is, is the fact that what is the right thing is very different for different people, right? If you look at the United States landscape, I, I, was, I was in England uh, talking about the Lincoln Highway recently, and, and so sort of off the cuff, I was like, oh, well, you know, Emmett really is an expression of a Midwestern personality, and, and, I, and I realized, well, they don't know what I'm talking about necessarily. So in sketching that out, one of the observations I made was that if, if you look at, because my father was raised in St. Louis, so that's, uh, that's my, you know, I got a little bit of right, my, yeah, I have do, a little bit of, some I got cred some, there. I got some cred cred, some cred, but uh, the, some prairie cred, is, is if you look at kind of the development of the Midwestern personality, uh, you goes, and you go back to the 19th century, you know, where uh, the, the prairie frontiers are establishing, taking this big, empty, flat land and turning it into farms and ranches. An aspect of the Midwestern personality is to be neighborly. And that's because at that time, being a good neighbor could mean the difference between life or death. Because you might be 10 miles from or a mile from nearest neighbor, you might be 40 miles from a physician. And you've got terrible weather, you know, dangers of a variety of kinds. So the ability to go next door, you know, a mile away or half a mile away and say, I, I'm in need, and to have that person respond was a very important part of the ethos. It's very different in New York. If you were in New York in the 19th century, your survival may depend on your being suspicious of your neighbor 
And that's a different, you know, dynamic altogether. Completely. I was really fascinated by him, was Emmett's dad, right? Emmett and Billy's dad, who was a transplanted Easterner. Yes. Who came to Nebraska for some reason thinking he wanted to get back on into the agrarian society somehow. Right. Yeah. And somehow that put off his his ineptitude, put off his neighbor. Yes. Who wasn't able to be neighborly, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. He even says yes. what did you expect me to go over there all yeah. the time and help him? Yes. You know? Yeah, you can't you really can't really interesting. Because yeah, you you got people are proud. They want to they want right. to achieve it themselves, you know. And I, I like the I mean, that's another uh, clear layer that runs throughout the book is that while these are 18-year-olds fashioning their future for themselves or the beginning to, all of them are highly influenced by the parents, the choices their parents made, you know, for better or worse, right? And, and that happens to us. When we're 18 and we realize we're in charge of things, we may look back on our parents' decisions and want to emulate them and a- amplify them in the way we live our life, or we want to reject them entirely. And so... Both of those things are happening in the story. You know, I wonder how many readers will have the kind of initial confusion that I had. Okay, yeah. And how quickly it was resolved. So when when the two uh, show up, when they hide out, you know, in the sheriff's car, and, you know, you learn about Emmett. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're with Wooly and you're with Duchess. Yes. Who couldn't be more different. Yes. Than that Midwestern. And I remember thinking, now, how is this, how are they all going to come together? Yes. And what really made them come together was that shared experience they had in Salinas, right? That's right, in the, in the, in the work facility, the right. juvenile facility. Uh, yeah. And it was the kind of equalizer of all of this. Yes. Even and though they came from very different absolutely. socioeconomic backgrounds. And most of us don't go through that particular experience, but the, the, the parallel, which is much more benign and universal, is freshman year in college. Perfect. Right? Yep. You arrive in the modern era in college and your three roommates are from three different parts of the country, different walks of life, and you could easily, within a period of like 90 days, form friendships that last your whole life with that weird assembly. And there's, so there's something is about that moment in time where you're brought together, uh, you know, whether it's to do time in this case or to go to school, where you're open to, who are you guys? You know, I'm here alone. Well, you arrive alone. You're eager to make friends and the, the background is stripped away. You don't see them, the neighborhood they're from, or anything like that. That's beautifully said. You know, the obvious question about the Lincoln Highway, which yeah. is something I knew nothing about. Right, me too. And so tell me how you discovered that and where that became. I, I, as I say, I've designed my books very carefully. And I knew that on the third day of the story that the, four, the three young men and, the, and Billy, the young brother, would drive out of the farm, which has been foreclosed upon, and Emmett had originally wanted to go uh, take a left and head to San Francisco, but they're going to take a right and go towards New York. I knew this, but I never really asked myself what road were they going to take. So, like in my notes, it sort of says that you know Route X. And it finally got to the point where I actually had to write <laughs> these events. And so I spread out a map and I'm looking at it and and it says and I'm sort of like, oh yeah, this looks like the right route to take, you know, in terms of where I want to go. And and looking at the map, it says Route 30 of Nebraska. And in very small print, it says, formerly known as the Lincoln Highway. And I was like, what is the Lincoln Highway? And so I had this whole sort of whole discovery at this moment as I'm about to launch the book. And the Lincoln Highway is the first highway that crossed the United States. And it was built by an entrepreneur. Uh, your Florida and Miami listeners know him very well because Carl Fisher also discovered Miami Beach among, as, a, as a, a retiree, in essence, 
uh, as a tireless entrepreneur, but having sold a, a company that he had built and made a fortune uh, in the early 20th century, he was convinced there should be the means to drive across America, and at the time it did not exist. The federal government was not involved in roads at the time, so he raised money from the public, and he built a highway that began in Times Square and ends in San Francisco. Was this around 1916? 1915, yeah. 1915, 16, exactly wow. right. And, and so at the, by 1920, uh, it was the most famous road in America for sure, without question. And uh, in 1913, when he had the idea, I want to do this, only about 120 people drove across the country in the entire year because it was so difficult to do. There, were, there was no real easy way to drive across the country. When the Lincoln Highway was completed uh, under his oversight, uh, within a year, 20,000 Americans were driving across the country in any given year. And, and so it really was this incredibly transformative invention in sh changing the behavior of Americans in the shape of the country in many ways. But it kind of, uh, it became uh, obsolete when the 1950s highway systems were built under Eisenhower, the great three lane wide super speed right. roads. And the Lincoln Highway still exists. You can go to Link, uh, Times Square, there's a sign that marks its beginning, and you can drive across the United States on the Lincoln Highway, and it will take you generally on roads that are one lane in either direction, through rural areas, past small towns, and eventually you get to San Francisco. So it's not the fastest way to go anymore. Um, and, but it has sort of disappeared from the public imagination as the numbered highway system right. dominated. It's very cool. And uh, it, because we didn't know much about it, it makes it that much more interesting, I yeah. think. And it's, it, 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 for me, of course, when I discovered it, I was like, I can't believe this exists because it's the perfect metaphor for a, a lot of what's right. going on in the book. And in right. fact, the fact that it's disappeared from our consciousness in a way is, is adds to the story. And a book that's about mythology and change, too. Completely. So you've been touring now. The book's yes. been out now for over a month, I Yes, believe. that's right. Uh, what have you been... And you're one of the first authors to really get out there right. and do physical, you know, in-person events. Yes. What are you finding? Uh, as you go out there and... Uh, it's, it's been very interesting. Uh, probably the biggest difference is that often now when you go to speak, uh, and the, a portion of the audience is watching at home. You know, the, this idea of the hybrid event, uh, which you probably really couldn't sell to the reading public uh, five years ago, is something that they're now quite used to, and that's terrific, because you can go into a hall... Uh, I was in, in Jacksonville last night uh, in Florida. There were uh, 300 to 400 people in the hall, but there was a whole other audience watching from home. And they might be uh, inconvenienced by being able to come out tonight. They may not be, uh, you know, they might be ill. They might be uh, live two hours away, whatever it is. And so having that combination, I think, is, is really great for, for the authors, for the audience, for the bookstores. Um, so that works well. But in the room itself, clearly everybody's very excited to be back. And I'm not saying that was because it was me. I'm just saying that people have longed for uh, this kinds of thing. And I, I had a reader send me an email saying uh, recently, you know, I'm driving X number of miles to see you in such and such a place because I am so over Zoom. Like, you know, and there is a little bit. We're all experiencing Zoom fatigue to some degree. You know? Absolutely. And, it, and, it, and it's very different to be in an environment where uh, if you say a joke and people laugh or it falls flat either way in, in a zoom you don't know you know in a, you need an audience and uh, uh to really hear what the impression I know is. that at the end of an event 
you can actually commune yes. with the audience. A Absolutely, bit. There, yes. The, the 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 screen doesn't just go blank. No question. And you you know you 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 have the chance to shake hands, to to answer questions, to trade comments. Well, and you know more than most that in the world of books, uh, particularly novels, literary novels, it is all about uh, the, someone wanting when they finish the book to turn to somebody else and say, "You should read this." Books are a very personal field. And the success of a literary novel is almost always tied to that, the power of it. When the person finishes, they want to recommend it to somebody Completely. else. And, and that's true in a, in a store where the booksellers make that happen, but it's also true at home or among friends or among book groups. And so there is a very, the, the personal connection through reading is at the heart of books. And so the ability to come together and to talk about it or meet the author or even to give a complaint, that's fine. You know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing because it is a personal thing. It's not like buying a piece of clothing, you know, where, there, where, there, where there's no personal element to why I bought it or who else bought it or whether I've talked about it. It's not like that. When I saw you on the way in to this talk, you were reading your, uh, your Patrick, uh, Patrick, Patrick White, Patrick yeah. White book. Talk a little bit about your own reading yep. and your own reading habits so and that I, sort of thing. I read with three friends, and we've been reading together for 17 years. Uh, it's two men, two women. All, we're all married, but, but our spouses are not involved. And uh, we meet every month at a different restaurant in New York City to talk about a novel. And we'll usually arrive at 7, leave at midnight. And we read... Pro by project. So we tend to, this is a terrible thing for me to say, we tend to read dead authors. I, you know, and as a living author, I shouldn't say that, but it is true. We tend to read dead authors, uh, someone where we know the canon of their work is of significance uh, and that will we'll reward close reading from, from our standpoint. So we'll do projects, and it might be a project, might be thematic, might read a series of novels that are tied to a theme or to a, a time period. Um, and very often we'll read a single author chronologically. Um, and so one of the projects we did a number of years ago is we began reading Nobel Prize winners who did not write in English. So we'd read a bunch of Thomas Mann. We'd all read uh, The Magic Mountain, but we hadn't read much else. And like Budden Brooks was an amazing experience. You know, we had so much fun. We read uh, uh, Nagub Mahfouz, the, the first Nobel and the only Nobel Prize winner to write in Arabic. Right. And his Cairo trilogy is an amazing discovery. And... Uh, so kind of in that tradition, we picked up on Patrick White. Patrick White's the only Australian to ever win the Nobel Prize in Literature and was very active in writing in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, 1930s, 40s, 50s. And we're now on our third Patrick White novel, kind of moving through his body of work, and it's been totally fun. You've had some amazing mentors in your life That's as true. a writer. Probably the most important mentor in my writing life was the, the, the great author Peter Matheson, who's both a novelist and a naturalist and an essayist uh, and founded the Paris Review with George Plimpton back in the 50s. Um, but he came to teach for a semester while I was at Yale, did a, wrote a fiction writing seminar uh, that you had to apply to get into. And I, before I, I get to that, I, I should start by saying that for I think this is true for young artists in any field, when you are 10 or 12 or 14 or 16 and, and you, you believe, you, you want to be an artist, you want to write or you want to make music or act or whatever your, your art form is, paint, there is this sort of combination at that age of, of belief in yourself. I can do this. You know, I've, I've read uh, books, I've begun to practice myself and, and I have, I think I, I think I can do this. You know, you have this sort of confidence. But on the other side of yourself is this uh, sense that maybe this is a delusion. 
you know, and those two parts of yourself are constantly at war. You know, can I, I confidence I can do this and, and, the, and the, the, the sort of the suspicion that actually this is a total delusion. I'm just, I'm not any better at this than anybody else. And in your teen years, there's, you, you keep progressing and involving you, doing your work and reading and comparing your work to the, the writers who are famous or not famous and reading your own work. And, and there's no real external opportunity to measure your confidence in yourself because your mother doesn't count. You know, she may love your work, but it doesn't count. And so what happened at Yale is, uh, as I applied to get in the seminar and we were submitting a short story every week. And at the end of, I think it was the third week, uh, Matt and I, Matheson was the writer I respected. Uh, part of the reason that I, you know, he kind of popped up on my radar screen and I applied to the seminar, but at the end of the third or fourth week, he said, Hey, listen, can you stay for a minute after class? And everybody left. And he said, um, listen, I don't know you, I don't know who you are or where you're from or why you're here or what you want to do. But having read, you know, your three stories, I think there's a possibility you may be gifted at this. And so I'm going to take your time very seriously here in this seminar. And I hope that you're going to take your time in the seminar very seriously too, for the same reasons. And that was a major turning point for me as a young artist right at the age of 20 or whatever or 19 where suddenly you go out of this realm of I think I can do this I think I can do this but not really being sure to suddenly having someone who you respect as a seasoned craftsperson judging your work and uh, you know I, I like to say to young people you know that is an enormously powerful thing in the life of a young artist and you do not need it to happen every year you know, you need it to happen like once every 15 years, you know, because you can, you, I lived off that for a long time. I, well, it's a wonderful story about Peter Matheson too, that, that he took it so seriously yes. as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was, I think, you know, probably in his sixties at the time, uh, and, you know, close to it. And so it was, I was the least, I was the last thing he needed to worry about, you know, but, uh, but you're right. He felt uh, a commitment to, uh, to, well, you have all Young this. Art. You have all this Florida connection. I mean, he yes. wrote "Killing Mr. Killing, Watson." He was writing it at the time. And yeah. All of that, so terrific. Yeah, you know, between Carl Fisher and Peter Matheson. Yeah, I keep ending up. We're going to consider you a Florida writer. My actually. mother, yeah, my mother lives in Naples. <laughs> oh, really? There yeah. you go. There you it's go. perfect. <laughs> right. But but your road was a little windy, right? Yes. Because you didn't go right from there. Yes. Into becoming a novelist. Yeah, I went after Yale, I went to Stanford and got a master's in literature, but I was there on a fiction writing grant, so I wrote fiction there. I when I came out of Stanford, I had uh, stories in the Paris Review, which was a, you know, a great uh, and 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 Peter was helpful in that and that he's the one who passed my work on to the to the review saying you should consider this kid. Um, but then I was frustrated in New York as a writer. I was writing a book, but I was lonely, I was broke. I was feeling claustrophobic, so I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm, and 20 years later, we were still working side by side. And uh, and what it, sort of this, this is the Peter Matheson story part two, I guess, which is that when I went and started working in the investment business, he was furious. He was like, "I cannot believe that you're doing this," you know. Uh, and he said, "All I can tell you is that everybody from my generation uh, that went to work on Wall Street." Uh, and everybody in the generation between my generation and yours, whoever went to Wall Street as an artist, um, they, they never came back, right? Your careers in Wall Street are potentially financially rewarding. They're intellectually interesting. The people are, are, are fun to work with or whatever. He said, so when you go, he said, you should assume right now, Amor, 
that if you're going to take this, if you're going to keep working at this job, that your life as a writer is over. And that's what he said. And he was serious. And, uh, and that kind of hung over me. So as I was working and I had stopped writing for a period of time, there was always this sort of the ghost of, and Peter was still alive at the time, but sort of this go, this ghostly figure of him knowing that he was like shaking his chains and being like, you know, you have failed to be who you, you know, what you could attain. So eventually with, with that sort of drifting over me, I did, I wrote, I wrote a book in my thirties while I was on the job. Uh, it took me seven years and I didn't like it. I set it aside and then I wrote Rules of Civility, and when that became a bestseller, uh, I retired from the investment field, and 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 I'm now uh, I'm a full time writer. And thank God uh, for me, Peter was still alive at the time, right. and so that we could sit down when Rules of Civility, uh, you know, had come out. And and because if, if if he had not had a chance to witness that his confidence in me ultimately paid off, uh, that would have been a great disappointment yeah. for me. Well, I, th- I think the thing is, you never stop being a writer in your own. Well, mind. that's right. Yeah. So even yes. though you were doing this other thing, yes. you were really a writer. But you live in fear that, and I used to say this to myself at the time, that, you know, you, that we are what we do. So there's a period of time where if you're not writing, you can still say, well, actually, I'm really a writer, but I'm not doing it. But at a right. certain point, you're not. Right. You know? So you do have to kind of force yourself to get back in right. the habit or stop calling yourself that. And which is what Peter meant too, of course. But you had a good fallback. It was a good career to have as a second career. Yes. <laughs> so it, it begs the question, what's next? What, what, what are you thinking about? What's going on in that, that mind of yours? Yeah. So, so I, cause I, these notions that I have over time, whether it's for General Moscow or Lincoln Highway, what ends up happening is, is if they really capture my imagination, they start to grow into notebooks, you know, multiple notebooks where in the case of Lincoln Highway, I ultimately had four or five of handwritten where I'm, I'm walking through the story. Who are the people? What happens to them? What are the settings? Uh, what do they sound like? What are elements of, you know, flashes of dialogue? And I'm kind of building my sense of the story before I sit down, as I say, to write chapter one. And, um, and so I am doing that now. On the next book. Yes, I'm well into that. It's an idea that I had many years ago. I'm, I'm you know, more than, than two notebooks into the process of imagining it. I won't tell you much about it. I won't ask. I, but other than to say, I think it spans like roughly, you know, 19, uh, you know, 1950 to, to the present or, or no, to 2000. So I'm clo- to the 2000. You got to get you gotta get close. Years, yeah, I'm getting closer. I was going to think maybe the 60s. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, right. So, yeah, the yeah. 40s and 50s. Yeah. And 20. multiple countries are involved. Yeah, you know, it's, right, it'll good. be an interesting project, I think. What does the rest of the year look like now? Now that you're in the middle of promoting. Yeah, you know, the, the, the thing about uh, uh, being on the road for a uh, work or talking about your work is seen the way I've, I've for, for those of you who are not writers or don't know this, if, if you write a book that uh, is not well received, you know, nobody invites you to go anywhere. And if they did, you shouldn't go, you know, because that's that's the reality, right? You should go back and write your next book if you write a book that that falls flat for whatever reason. And if you write a book that is well received, then you are asked to go more places than you should go, you know, because you could you could spend too much time doing that. But, but I do think that if I'm going to spend four years writing a book, I should be prepared to spend, you know, six months to a year helping the book find its readers. And so I love the chance to, I'm here in town for the Miami book festival. Which, I mean, is, I should say. which is starting tonight. Yeah, I'm speaking tonight at the festival. Amor is and, kicking it off, you know, which and, is great. And that's, you know, that's a great luxury as an author to be able to come to a festival like this, to speak to readers. Um, and, and so I do, I will be on the road on and off for the next six months and I will, mm appear and you know probably in the end I'll appear in 25 of the 50 states and uh and and I think it's as I say that's an important part 
of the life of the artist is to, is to get out on the road and talk about your work a little bit. But you do have to eventually get, give yourself a deadline <laughs> to say, okay, by, you know, so for me, it's July 1st. July 1st, I got to be back behind my desk and And, and also and to be with your family. Well, right? that's true, too. Hey, okay. Mo, would you like to read a little something from the book? For you, Mitch? <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> so I, what I'm going to read is, is uh, from uh, the Will, a Willie chapter, which comes in the second half of the book. As we've discussed, there are three young men uh, who were in together in the juvenile facility. And Wooly is, uh, was raised in Manhattan from a well, from a, an aristocratic family. So he had, uh, uh, he had, he grew up in a privileged world, as it were. But he doesn't, he sort of feels at odds with it. His father has died in the Second World War. His mother has married, uh, remarried and moved to, I think, Palm Beach. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and he feels he's he's gone from one boarding school to another, so he's sort of a young man from privilege, but who also feels a little adrift and alone. And uh, at this this is a moment where uh, late in the evening uh, he is uh, there. He and a Duchess are in Manhattan in their car. He was on a trip to Greece with his mother in 1946, while standing at the foot of the Parthenon, that Willie first gained an inkling of the list that itemization of all the places that one was supposed to see. There it is, she had said, while fanning herself with her map when they had reached the dusty summit overlooking Athens, the Parthenon in all its glory. In addition to the Parthenon, as Willie was soon to learn, there was the Piazza San Marco in Venice, and the Louvre in Paris, and the Uffizi in Florence. There were the Sistine Chapel in Notre Dame and Westminster Abbey. It was something of a mystery to Willie where the list came from, it seemed to have been compiled by various scholars and eminent historians long before he was born. No one had ever quite explained to Willie why one needed to see all these places on the list, but there was no mistaking the importance of doing so, for his elders would inevitably praise him if he had seen one, frown at him if he had expressed disinterest in one, and chastise him in no uncertain terms if he happened to be in the vicinity of one and failed to pay it a visit. Suffice it to say, when it came to seeing the items on the list, Willie Wilkett Martin was Johnny on the spot. Whenever he traveled, he took special care to obtain the appropriate guidebooks and secure the services of the appropriate drivers to get him to the appropriate sites at the appropriate times. To the Colosseum, Signore, and step on it, he would say. And off they would zip through the crooked streets of Rome with all the urgency of policemen in pursuit of a gang of thieves. Whenever Willie arrived at one of the places on the list, he always had the same threefold response. First was a sense of awe for these were not your run-of-the-mill stopping spots. They were big and elaborate and fashioned from all sorts of impressive materials like marble and mahogany and lapis lazuli. Second was a sense of gratitude towards his forebears, since they had gone to all the trouble of handing down this itemization from one generation to the next. But third and most important was a sense of relief, a relief that having dropped his bags at his hotel and dashed across the city in the back of a taxi, Willie could check one more item off the list. But having considered himself a diligent checker-offer since the age of 12, earlier that evening, when they were driving to the circus, Willie had something of an epiphany. While the list had been handed down with consistency and care by five generations of Wilkits, which is to say Manhattanites, for some strange reason, it did not include a single site in the city of New York. And though Willie had dutifully visited Buckingham Palace, La Scala and the Eiffel Tower, he had never, ever, not even once, driven across the Brooklyn Bridge. Growing up on the Upper East Side, Willie had had no need to cross it. To get to the Adirondacks, or Long Island, 
or any of those good old boarding schools up in New England, you would travel by way of the Queensboro or Triborough bridges. So after Duchess had driven down, uh, down Broadway and circled round City Hall, it was with a palpable sense of excitement that Willie realized they were suddenly approaching the Brooklyn Bridge with every intention of driving across it. How truly majestic was its architecture, thought Willie. How inspiring the cathedral-like buttresses and the cables that soared through the air. What a feat of engineering, especially since it had been built back in 18-something-something, and ever since had supported the movement of multitudes from one side of the river to the other and back again, every single day. Surely the Brooklyn Bridge deserved to be on the list. It certainly had as much business being there as the Eiffel Tower, which was made from similar materials at a similar time, but which didn't take anybody anywhere. Thank you, Amor. You're Thank welcome, you Mitch. So Thank much. you. Thanks for asking. Uh, l- let me ask you one last, l- one last thing, and, and just because you're such a wide reader, who are you reading these days? And, and are there people, are there books that you can recommend without embarrassing you too much? Not embarrassing you. After, I mean, I, other than the Patrick White, you mean? Yeah, other than the Patrick White. So. Um, I, you know, I, I've uh, recently read um, uh, Ann Patchett's new book of essays, which is just coming out. Excellent. These Precious Days, which is... Uh, she's, all, she's been such a wonderful person yes for for us independent booksellers for, yeah, she's, well. a, she's a great advocate she's such an advocate for, for reading for writing for bookstores yeah, she's uh, amazing and, and for life in general but uh for those of you who know her best as a novelist she is a delightful essayist and uh and this is at least her second uh you know large collection of essays and they are filled with wisdom and one of the nice things about her work is that in her novels with the exception of Commonwealth, she never really had written about her own personal experience in any form, not even in a disguise form. She was always, sort of like me. She was always looking to tell some story outside of the scope of her experience. But in her essays, she's very personal. So she invites us into her friendships, to her relationships with her family and her siblings, her oh, parents. And, and, you know, in the memoir about Lucy. And yes. She wrote that wonderful piece in Harper about Suki. And that is, that is, the, is that's the key piece of the yeah, new that's book. that's an amazing yeah, it's wonderful. And, and the, uh, um, These Precious Days is yeah. the title from that long piece oh, she is. wrote about Suki, yeah. uh, who, uh, a young, uh, a woman who happened to, she took in yeah. as she was going through cancer treatment and they had an extraordinary relationship. Um, so that was a great pleasure uh, reading that book, I must say. Well, Amor Tolls, the book is The Lincoln Highway. Thank you so much for not only being on The Literary Life, but thank you for kicking off the Miami Book Fair this I year. I can't wait, Mitch. Thanks for having me. All right.